a few of the best paragraphs I've read this year. So this will be a different kind of episode. I collect highlighted passages from different articles that I read, and every six months or so, post a collection of them to my Rubes letter. And today, producer Jeremiah McVeigh and I are going to go over some that he thought were especially interesting. So let's talk about them. Hey, Jeremiah. Hey, Matt. Yeah, so the first one that I picked out is from a blog post, or maybe we can call it an essay, by Morgan Housel or Housel called Vicious Traps. And here is the paragraph. The first rule of very successful people, those who think in unique ways you admire are likely to also think in unique ways you don't admire. A lot of people who are admired for thinking, I wonder what would happen if we tried something different, are the same people who become despised for doing something different that doesn't work or loses money or hurts other people. And I wanted to bring this one up just because I feel like this is definitely in line with a theme you've returned to in your essays and in these discussions when talking especially about tech companies and their, let's call them moral blind spots, I guess, just to put it generously. <laughs> so yeah, tell me about your thoughts behind that paragraph and why it, why it struck you. Is it for those reasons or others? Honestly, the first thing that comes to mind is how Kanye said something very similar a few months back. I don't remember the exact quote, but it was basically about like, you want all these crazy ideas when I'm doing it in production or in rap lyrics. But then like when I'm telling you how I feel about politics or whatever else, you're like, I can't believe he's crazy. It's like, yeah, you want the good crazy without the bad crazy. And the reality is the crazy comes together is my paraphrasing of it. And I think that's something that we as a society uh, often don't like to face or admit because it makes us, it makes us, you know, have to make some painful choices or accept, you know, people or actions that we might not want to accept because there's other things about it that are great. But also this is a lot of great art is about, you know, people like that and making us figure like, you know, I just saw Oppenheimer recently. And I think, you, you know, that's wrestling with some of, of this of like, oh, you're doing this incredible scientific accomplishment, but then you're also creating a weapon that's killing, you know, tens of thousands of people. And like, how do you, how do you wrestle with that? How do you process that? And how do you feel about this person? Uh, and then, yeah, to your point, I think, you know, we get into, in the tech world, you know, we like to refer to them as disruptors. And yeah, a lot of times that's something that we admire and that's great. And looking at these people who are innovating or figuring out how to do something a completely different way. Uh, Steve Jobs comes to mind as someone who's like, yeah, like look at how incredibly innovative this guy is. But also in many areas of life, he was kind of a terrible person. And like as a human being, he behaved in a lot of ways that, you know, were like reprehensible. So how do we how do we feel about this? How do we process this? And, you know, especially when we're talking about people who have like really outsized egos or ambition, uh, a lot of times these things are coming together. And so, you know, how do, how do we want to deal with this as people and as a society, I think is like an interesting question. Yeah, I think one of the essays that you've written that we adapted for this show, you call out the quote, uh, move fast and break stuff by saying like, well, you broke it. Now what? So that's kind of what this had me thinking of. Uh, and I think there's also, there's a reason, you know, if we go to this tech realm, so many of these companies, there's, they're started by people who are like this. And then eventually yeah. that person has to get shoved to the side and they need to bring in someone who can actually like manage people and handle mm -hmm. operations as opposed to disruption. Cause like breaking stuff or innovating oftentimes is very a uh, very different skill set is required than actually like sustaining something and uh, right. hel helming it over the long haul, uh, which can be a much sort of gentler proposition. Right. Well, at what point do you think, if there even is an answer to this, that 
this kind of thinking of one way to put it is like you have to accept the good with the bad, or at least it's asking whether you have to do that. At what point is that an excuse for people, whether they're an artist, a tech disruptor, anything like what at what point is is one not worth the other or are you just kind of like hiding your or not hiding your flaws like making excuses for your flaws by saying look at all the other good stuff i've done i think the wishy-washy but true answer is you take it on a case-by-case basis i mean if someone's you know solving the world that's different than if they're making you know a good song and and what do we want to excuse or forgive you know is is going to vary but if I was searching for like some lesson here, I would bring it back to our society and how much we idolize and worship celebrity, fame, power, and wealth, and people who have it. And we tend to mm-hmm. think these people are like gods or angels or some like holy beings. And like, no, they're just human beings. And a lot of times, they're people who are reaching those heights are driven by something that isn't always you know wonderful and great. So like start having a more like uh, holistic view of people who are accomplishing things and remembering that they're human beings instead of this sort of like uh, uh, idolatry that we tend to have or many people in our society tend to have about those who are successful. Right. I think that's a good point. Why don't we move on to the next one, which is a quote from Phoebe Waller-Bridge from New York Times Magazine feature called Phoebe Waller-Bridge's Great Indiana Jones Adventure. Uh, So this is a little longer one. Naughty hand is when I'm writing and I'll get pissed off at myself for being boring. Then I'll suddenly start writing something slightly angry. Naughty hand is like, for sake, Phoebe, just sort this out. Really early on, I would deliver a script to a producer and they'd go, this is a bit. And I'd go, I know I hate it. This is what I really want to write. And I'd have another script, the naughty hand script. I'd be like, I meant to do that. And they'd be like, this one's really good. It was like I had to get the one that I thought people wanted out of my system and then be like, suckers, here's a much better one. So I like this idea of needing to work out the version of something that you don't actually like just to get it out of the way so you can then work on a version you actually do like. That's why this paragraph resonated with me. My only thing with it is that the way she kind of describes it, if I'm understanding the scenario right here, it seems specifically meant for people who may already have the job. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you have the writing job to write that script, which is what I it seems like she's referring to there, you know. Um, so you have that leeway to work it out. You're not like trying to get the job and trying to convince someone you're the right writer for the project. So I don't know. That's a little nitpicky maybe. But like I said, I do like that idea behind it though. Yeah. And I think you've got to go to Fleabag, uh, which broke her out into the mainstream. And I think is one of, if not the best, you know, television, television shows of the past decade um, and started as a one woman show. I believe that she did in England and, you know, I like, so to tie into what you're saying that from my understanding, didn't originate with her trying to get a job or asking anyone's permission. That was her creating something or talking about her own life on some level. And then I think you see that naughty hand approach in Fleabag of like, here's a character who keeps doing the wrong thing over and over again. And like, oh God, I wish, no, what are you doing? And then, but like, that makes for compelling content that makes you want to, well, what happens? How, you know, even though you're not rooting for this person on many levels, because they keep making idiotic choices, you're also fascinated by it and want to see it. So that's sort of what I'm 
getting out of it. And like, I think it's, yeah, you might have to work uh, initially, at least outside of the system. It might not get you the job. It might not be something that pleases an executive or whoever your superior mm -hmm. is, but you know, it might be something that you have to do on your own. But then if you can listen to right. that, you know, what, what she calls naughty hand, you know, and, and mentions that it comes from a place of anger. Like I go to that's truth. If there's something I'm not supposed to say this, but I'm so angry and it just comes out like usually that's something real. That's something true. That's coming from a place where even if it's not admirable, it's still kind of fascinating. And if, if we're talking about making, you know, art that's compelling, I feel like that's a, a really good approach to take. Right. I guess I would also think of it as knowing and using your voice rather than the voice you think they want to hear, mm -hmm. you know, like it's, it's have putting your perspective instead of like trying to think through, like from the other person's perspective, like this is what I think they would like, which is basically what she's saying. Um, know your voice right for that. Yeah. It's, uh, when you're, when you're writing for them, you're much more likely to make something generic. I mean, I think this yeah. is, we're seeing this now with, you know, chat GPT and AI It's like, oh no, it's going to take all these screenwriting jobs. It's going to, you know, take comedian jobs and writer jobs. It's like, well, if you're just doing generic stuff that a computer could write, then yeah, it might. Like, I think if you write late night monologue jokes, I would be worried because that is just sort of like formulaic and generic and, you know, not that artful in my opinion. But if you're talking about like the stuff that really makes you angry and that's personal about your life or your experience and like is, is sort of dripping with humanity, that's not something that AI is going to be able to replicate. You're going to like still have your own lane. Okay. And uh, moving on to our third one. So this one is from a piece in the New Atlantis by John Esconis called How John Stewart Made Tucker Carlson. So here it goes. The tragedy of it all is that this isn't just a nightmare version of the world John Stewart dreamed of. It's a world he built. In his quest to turn real news from the exception into the norm, he pioneered a business model that made it nearly impossible. It's a model of content production and audience catering perfectly suited to monetize alternate realities delivered to fragmented audiences. It tells us what we want to hear and leaves us with the sense that they have departed for fantasy worlds while we have our heads on straight. Americans finally have what they didn't before, the phony theatrics that have been destroyed and replaced not by an earnest, new above the fray centrism, but a more authentic fanaticism. John Stewart pioneered fake news in the hope it would deliver us from the absurdities of the old media world. He succeeded beyond his wildest dreams. Okay, so I find this to be an interesting framing, but I also think it seems a bit myopic. It reminds me in a way of discussions that you and I have had about Trump in previous podcasts, not this show. The idea of like, did he cause the problems or did the problems allow him to become successful in this right. system? I think this framing around Stuart overlooks how much of a reaction his version of The Daily Show was to Fox News's particular brand of BS. Like, I know that they would rag on the network news and stuff, but I mean, come on. They were hitting up Fox News left and right. Like, if you've looked at the percentages, I'm sure it's outweighed in that direction. Um, so also the internet and technology really caused, I think, or exacerbated a lot of the problems with the media and the discourse that I think this framing is putting on Stuart. So I think it's sort of like blaming everything on one thing instead of like viewing it 
it's almost like viewing him in a vacuum. But I didn't read the whole piece. I'm going just by these paragraphs. So maybe you can correct me on that if, if you read the whole piece and, or remember the whole piece and, and think it had that scope. Yeah, no, I don't think you're wrong. And I do think it's a little bit, uh, it's putting too much value into like John Stewart doesn't run the country and control the media. And like, <laughs> but I think he's, there's an interesting point in it. And what, what was fake news and how we responded to it. And like John Stewart was, I think, you know, in, in my mind, a very admirable and funny way. I thought, you know, he was great on that show being like, look at this hypocrisy, look at this nonsense. Look at here. We have video of this person saying this three months ago, and now they're saying the exact opposite. What a joke. Um, and that there was value in it. And that was good. And I think the line from this paragraph that stuck with me, is it tells us what we want to hear and leaves us with the sense that they have departed for fantasy worlds while we have our heads on straight. And I think that describes so much of how people feel about politics and, and media nowadays where they're, everyone's in their own bubble and is like, well, you know, we know what's going on, but they, boy, they're wackos, you know? But everyone on every side of every issue feels that way now. So it's just sort of become uh, the mode that we operate in. So I, I think it does give too much credit to Stewart on some level, but I also think it's pointing out some sort of microcosm that has sort of multiplied across society and within the media. So on that level, I think it's interesting. Um, I also think it's interesting, you know, you know, Tucker Carlson and John Stewart famously had a, you know, this was on CNN, I think, when Tucker yeah, Carlson Crossfire. was on Crossfire and John Stewart came in and just sort of like, I don't know, just sort of uh, eviscerated, I guess is the term we would use now uh, on the internet, but like really gave it to him in a way that kind of, you know, I would put him in his place and, you know, that show wasn't on the air much longer. And I wonder if on some level, the way we talk about that White House correspondence dinner and, and where Seth Meyers mocked Trump and what happened afterwards as like the origin story. I wonder if on some level you could point to Tucker Carlson and what happened with Jon Stewart. And after that, like how he kind of reinvented himself as a much more sort of uh, right wing, uh, you know, cuckoo, I guess is the word I, I would go with, uh, I, I think is an interesting question. And then I also think there's an interesting sort of parallel between Stewart and Tucker Carlson, how much we elevate the individual uh, and think they are the ones sort of moving the needle when really it's the platform. So I think we see it now with Jon Stewart and his Apple TV show seems to barely make an impact at all on society. Whereas when he had The Daily Show on Comedy Central and everyone you know was watching you know just from a few limited choices, it had this outsized impact. And similarly with Tucker Carlson, you know we're all like, oh, this guy's ruining America and the white supremacy and all that. And but now that he's off Fox, like, does anyone even care? Is anyone really paying attention? I think, you know, we had right. we had the same reactions to Bill O'Reilly before him and Glenn Beck, and we, you know we keep thinking that it's these individuals that are moving the needle. When in reality, I think it's it's the platform, it's the time slot, it's the audience, and you could just like plug you could plug in a new version of it. And it's just going to have the same impact. So because we said all, all the stuff we said about Tucker Carlson before that, we said about Bill O'Reilly and, you know, and Sean Hannity. And so it's like at some point, do you stop looking at these individuals and look more at, you know, sort of uh, the media as the message kind of approach of it's the platform, it's the time slot, it's the chair, it's the access to an audience. And then that if that one person is, uh, you know, offending someone in charge in any way, we'll just move them out of the way and plug in someone new and the whole, you know, circus marches on. Yeah, I agree with a lot of what you're saying, but here's what I think is where, where I would part with you. First off, 
I think the Fox News, John Stewart thing is a little bit chicken in the egg. Like to me, Fox News was doing their thing first and then John Stewart came along and skewered it. Yep. And one of those people, he's, I mean, even though he wasn't really part of Fox News, as you said, he was from CNN, but he was like a right wing dude. He was like the token right wing guy on uh, certain programs, Tucker Carlson. And he skewered him. He skewered Bill O'Reilly. He skewered Glenn Beck. Basically, I feel like that was part of why Glenn Beck left Fox News was yep. eventually John Stewart took his toll. So, so that's why, the, like, I don't completely buy this framing, even though I find it's interesting in this paragraph. But to what you're saying about the platform versus the person, I do think that he was doing something semi-unique at the time. So I do think in his case, it was the person. I think the thing, the reason his show now isn't catching as much is one, it's on Apple. Two, he beget all these other things that are doing versions of what he did. You know, there's Colbert who, who made uh, the late show super political. Seth Meyers does a closer look, which in basically his whole thing has been a reaction to Trump. It seems like in, in a big way, you know, like there's still a daily show that exists with in different forms and there's all sorts of internet clones in a way of all these shows. So it's like, we don't have the one guy doing it. We have all these ones where you can go to the one you prefer. And then people are like, well, I don't need Stuart. I have my my guy now. And of course, like John Oliver, too. That's maybe one of the best examples. So, yeah, I, no, I agree with you. Obviously, the media ecosystem has changed and you've got, you know, yeah, he used to sort of have a monopoly in many ways. And now there's just thousands of options online. And yeah, like you said, also, he's not daily anymore. He's weekly. I also think, you know, uh, an important factor is, uh, and I love John Stewart, I don't know if he's that funny anymore or wants to be funny. Like being <laughs> right. funny is really hard. As someone who is funny sometimes and serious other times, I find it much easier to be serious. Uh, and yeah. being funny is like, it's a whole different muscle and thing that you need to accomplish, but it's also sugar that helps the pill go down a lot of times. So I feel like John Stewart has become more and more of like a serious, legitimate commentator and it makes sense that then his yeah. audience has diminished at the same time. But I do think even uh, an even bigger reason is what you're talking about, that there, there's just so many more options now that it's hard for anything to break through unless it's you know super outrageous or whatever. Right. No, but I think you make a great point, because when I think about the moments from his new show that have gone viral there of him, like really taking someone to task in a serious way and there's an absurdity there that you could laugh at, but it's not funny. It's not comedy, I would say. Um, so I think that's a great point. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I'll add in this. If you're a low level politician in some southern state and Jon Stewart wants to fly out and interview you about a particular issue, you should decline. All right. That will not go yeah. well for you. I'm just letting you know right out of the gate that it's uh, you should be suspicious of that invitation. <laughs> I've never understood why anyone would put themselves through that with him back in the day, Colbert back in the day on his old show. And yeah, especially now though. Yeah. Cameras. Totally. People love cameras. True. True. Instead of some quickies, I thought I'd play a clip from a recent stand-up set I did because, you know, crowd work clips are, going super viral on social media nowadays, so I decided to try my hand at one of them. 
I, I'm gonna do some crowd work, guys, now, because that's what the algorithm demands. Uh, so, sir, I'm gonna ask you what you do for a living, but I'll just preemptively state that I don't really care. And whatever you say, I'm just gonna insult you afterwards. Uh, but it's what we need to do. This is what stand-up comedy is now, is doing crowd work, which is interesting, because for years, it's what comedians like looked down upon as sort of like a lower version of the art form. It was like a little bit hacky, and you weren't supposed to do it. But now we all have to do it, because that's what works online, which is weird to have your entire art form like kind of art-directed by like Mark Zuckerberg and the Chinese government. But <laughs> I, I guess that's where we are as a society. And I'll tell you, the even weirder thing is like you don't even really want it to be funny as much as you just want it to be like controversial because the way you get something to go viral isn't necessarily like having a good punchline. It's just having a bunch of people argue in the comments section <laughs> about whether or not it was like racist or offensive or some other reason to cancel you. So like it's just weird because the reason I got into comedy was to make like a room full of people in the room together, like laugh and feel joy. But now the goal of comedy is to make a bunch of strangers alone in their homes fight with each other. So what do you do for a living? I'm just a student. What a loser, am I right? What a loser, what a dork. I read books all day. You can subscribe to or follow this show just about anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, or anywhere else that allows you to do that. And when I say that, I mean, like, leave it a good review. I feel like that's obvious, but if, you, if you're just going to leave it a bad review, you, you don't have to. Anyway, it helps others find the show, which I really appreciate. Uh, if you want to reach out to me directly, you can email me at mattruby at hey.com. That's mattruby at hey.com. And if you like this podcast, you should subscribe to the Rubes Letter, where what you just heard first appeared. You can find that at mattrubycomedy.com slash subscribe. And while you're at mattrubycomedy.com, you can also find links to my Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok, where I post clips of my stand-up and other stuff, too. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. This podcast is produced by Stereoactive Media. 